0: Okay, so we're going to continue our little series we started a couple weeks ago on um, being countercultural, and it is based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know about his Sermon on the Mount or want to remind yourself, basically it's one of his, his first big sermon messages that he gave when he started his ministry, and he went up on a little hill, they called it a mount because they didn't have very big mountains in Israel overlooking the Sea of Galilee and kind of the area he was a part of. And he had some of his disciples, not all of them. So he was just starting his ministry. And the Sermon on the Mount is really a message. um, Like a lot of his messages later on become commandments, like to be salt and light of the earth, right? And he gives a commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he has some commandments that he gets to, but he actually starts off with strong recommendations. And what he's doing is he's, he's uh, explaining to people what's different about Jesus and his ministry than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the time. In today's words, we'd say what's different about the ministry of Jesus versus other faiths, for example. For example, there, there's a lot of people out there who would describe themselves as very spiritual, In fact, probably over 95% of Americans consider themselves very spiritual. They'll pray. um, They have spiritual beliefs. They adopt often ideas from a lot of different sources, but they're not necessarily Christian or sold out to any one idea. So Jesus' Beatitudes are what separates someone from being a spiritual person to being set apart for God and being a Christian. An authentic Christian. So that's kind of what this Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about how is Jesus and true authentic Christianity different from spiritualism and sort of surface Christianity that a lot of people will profess to be a Christian, but often they don't even know what that actually means. All right, so his first little um, line, I'll actually just read through them all real fast. It's in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Later on, we're also going to be in Esther chapter 4. But it's Matthew chapter 5, and he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The Beatitudes, right? He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because... Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. All right, so he gives all of these kind of um, foundational ideas that separate him from the religious status quo of the time. <clears throat> all right, to be an authentic Christian, exercising authentic Christianity, you would have these principles you'd be chasing after, not just the surface Christian answer, well, I'm saved by the grace of God, which is true. But you would have a lot more meat to it. And so again, Jesus is kind of identifying what makes someone really authentic in their Christian faith. And he recommends if you really want a strong and powerful faith, you need to pursue some of these things and discover what they mean. Because some of them at the surface level, they seem backwards. Some of them might even seem incorrect. Some of them maybe make sense. Um, So that's kind of what we're doing is unpacking them a little bit. So the first one was blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does anybody remember from a couple weeks ago? I realize that was a while ago, especially when you're studying school and you got so much going on. What What do you remember from that time, <coughs> excuse me, a couple weeks ago? What jumped out to you about it? Anybody have anything they remember? Yep, Nicholas? Right, the poor in spirit get to see the miracles of God. Very good. What else? What else do you remember? Yeah, Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You're not going to follow the ways of the world and everything. Right. Anybody here? How many of you have seen the the chosen before? Maybe even just once. So if you haven't seen it, it's a really cool video series on Jesus, and they do actually a pretty good job. Probably the, one of the best jobs I've ever seen. And they have this little, um, I don't know what you call it, but intro, basically, where they have fish swimming you know, along the screen, and then one fish goes the other direction, and then soon some other fish start swimming against kind of the current. That's kind of what countercultural is, right? You're going in opposite direction in the majority of the world. Right? So Jesus is really, when he starts this message, he's starting off by telling the disciples, listen, we're going to go a different direction than what people realize. Right? To be a Christian is to go a different direction. To follow Jesus is to go a different direction than the rest of the world. All right. Good. Anything else you remember? Yep. Right. So being poor in spirit is to be broken spirit. Right. To recognize that you are you're broken. Right. And the only way to be whole is to have Jesus. Right. In other words, you can't follow a bunch of laws or a bunch of rules and become whole. The first step is to Acknowledge that, no, I'm actually sinful, and I'm broken, and I make mistakes. And the answer to wholeness is going to come through the person of Jesus and a relationship with him. Right. So he he kind of acknowledges the first, again, the the poor, poor in spirit will see the kingdom of God or experience the kingdom of heaven, depending on if you read Matthew or Luke. The answer is, well, first you have to have salvation in your life and to really repent of your sin and to get wholeness is to follow and surrender your life to Jesus, right? We talked about the kingdom of heaven, to experience the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and the reason why they were those differently is Matthew's writing to the Jewish audience and um, Luke is writing to basically everybody else, a Gentile audience, so they use different words, but it means the same thing. It means the rule or reign of God, right? He's saying if you are poor in spirit, if you recognize, in other words, your own vulnerability and brokenness before God, then you will get to experience, at least in little bits, pieces of heaven. Here. Right? So, for example, first off, you're going to receive salvation if you surrender your life to Jesus, but secondly, you can experience things like healing, divine inspiration where God directs you, spiritual anointing for some kind of assignment, right, like witnessing to your friends, for example, revelation of truth, so when you read the Bible, it becomes alive to you, and can help you with spiritual warfare, right? There's a lot of evil things going on in the world, and it gives you clarity so you're not confused about stuff. So today we are going to talk about the second line, and it kind of builds upon the first one a little bit. This one seems a little more straightforward compared to the first one, and that is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? It's kind of interesting because some cultures on earth, I don't know, have anybody ever been overseas and uh, been to like a funeral overseas? Anybody? Okay. So some cultures express a lot of mourning and others do not, right? So as Americans typically we're quite a bit more reserved, right? If somebody asks you how you're doing, how do you respond? Okay, or usually good, right? Doesn't matter what's going on, usually say good right? We, we kind of hide how we're actually doing, right? If you go to Japan, for example, they're even more reserved than we are, right? Everything's fantastic all the time. You never complain about anything, right? Even if somebody dies. Then you go to a place like um, Africa where I went, and I got to describe this scene to you. I've never forgotten it. I went, I went to a wedding while I was there, and I went to a funeral. Um, we were out. It's, it's very nomadic, like you see in the savannah pictures okay there's all these people gathered but there's like no buildings around we're just they throw up a tent basically and that's going to be where you have your funeral service and people come from all over so there's I don't know three or four hundred people I mean there's quite a bit of people but this truck drives up with something in the back that looks like a casket and almost the entire audience throws themselves on the ground and start wailing and crying and rolling around in the dirt you know I'm just standing there like what just happened you know, people are freaking out. Well, it was a truck full of Coca-Cola, actually, coming to deliver beverages, but they thought it was the casket. But what what does that tell you about their culture? They care, and what else are they not afraid of? To express how they're actually feeling, right? So some cultures are better at expressing how they mourn, right, their grief, their sorrow, than we are. Right? We're embarrassed to say something's going on, and so we hide it, and then we go secretly maybe to a counselor, but we don't talk to anybody else about it. Right, That's our culture. Right, People feel ashamed almost to express that something's not going right and they're having sorrow. Versus there, they gladly, openly express it. They're not ashamed of it. So again, You know, Jesus is talking to this audience and he's telling, hey, listen, if you will express that you are mourning and not hide it on a very surface and instant level, you're going to be comforted. In other words, you're going to have a faster road to comfort the more honest and vulnerable you are about it. Does that make sense? Because to be in denial, right, is one of the processes of grieving often. But to stay there for a long time you're not going to get healthy, right? It's going to stick. So as a person, we are. Jesus is encouraging us, hey, listen, as a Christian, to be set apart in our culture, you actually want to express when you're not doing well and to be free to mourn, to be vulnerable, to be authentic, right? and just tell people, hey, this is what's really going on. Now, obviously, everybody's personality is going to be different. I'm not telling you to take on somebody else's personality, but... To acknowledge that there's a problem and to express it is a healthy thing. Right? All right, so this word mourning does not mean literal mourning, in case you're not totally with me here, right? It means to express grief or sorrow, right? Like in the, with, with when, when, I can't talk, when a loved one dies, for example, is the most common expression of mourning. It's deep sorrow. Because you've lost either a person you care about or it could be some cherished thing in your life. For example, here's some examples of mourning. You could lose a loved one, right? You could also lose something in your family, for example, like a divorce could take place. It could cause you to enter into a season of mourning and grief, right? You could, for example, make a sexual mistake and lose your virginity. It could cause a season of mourning and grief in your life. You could lose your freedom, like those that are in your crane, right, fighting for their life, their homeland, their country, could cause a serious time of mourning, right? You could lose friendship, either from something so simple as somebody moving away or a breakdown in the relationship, right? Your own sin, your own regret could cause a season of mourning in your life. So there's different types of mourning, but again, the Lord promises that he will comfort those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted right so why why might it be good to mourn over someone or something what do you think yeah here you go. right it's gonna get worse you said if you just hold on to it what else Good, what else? Anybody ever get mad about something and then, um, or frustrated or stressed or maybe in this case regret something and then that's like all you're thinking about? Or you get mad at somebody and kind of explode on them and you're like, you don't know where that came from? But you have all this pent up frustration and stress in your life, right? There's a lot of ways that this can come out sideways. And some things, quite frankly, if you're truly mourning something, grieving over something, is because it's valuable, right? You're not going to mourn for something that's not valuable. So the loss of a person or a friendship, again, of um, maybe a sin issue in your life, something like that, or something done to you, some of those things are worth mourning. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember when a friend of some of you probably know the family, but um, guy, a friend of ours that was killed in an airplane accident or helicopter accident. I know you probably know their family, but um, I just remember watching his wife, and and she just can't even walk down the aisle of the funeral. You know, she's in so much grief and pain. um, You know, sometimes going through those things, the more expressive you can be, the faster you can heal. To mourn means to be deeply felt, right? And you need requires a deep touch from Jesus. Jesus promises that if we mourn, and assumably obviously mourn to him, that he promises to come and comfort us. Did you know that you can actually mourn something before you lose it? Knowing that it's coming. Right. So for example, uh, maybe a, a loved one is in the process of dying you can actually start mourning them before they're dead, right? Or if a relationship is falling apart, like a divorce or something, and somebody's going through divorce, they can begin a mourning process before they ever sign the paperwork, you know? And the kids can go through the same thing. Sometimes you can mourn before something takes place. You know, death is probably the thing we mourn the most, um, that loss, that brokenness, the cost of sin that sometimes doesn't make sense. Um, Two things, examples of this. One is my own father is actually dying of cancer right now that he hid from all of us for years. And he's in hospice in Laurel. We just moved him out there. Um, But it's odd. Like, we were talking with my siblings as we were driving to Helena and back where he lived, and all of us had begun the mourning process before He's dead. You know, you just begin processing the loss of it, and of course, we we mourn in the loss of, in his case, his his life. But we mourn each one of us. We mourn more than the, his death. He's a Christian, so we know where he's going to be with Jesus. But we mourn his decisions he made in life. You know, he's one of those people that just couldn't make healthy decisions in a in a, in a row. He couldn't keep a job. So he's constantly making career decisions that were painful for him and my mom and for us as kids and our family. He made a lot of emotional decisions where he got himself in a lot of trouble. Uh, get fired from different things. And financially, he was always a train wreck just making poor financial decisions. So it was like a, we're not only mourning his death and that inevitable that, that it's ending too early, um, but we're also mourning all of his lost potential <laughs> You know, I have friends that I know that mourn that over their kids sometimes. Maybe they get into drugs and it ruins their life. Right? It causes a lot of mourning and sorrow. Yes? Another way you could put it is your mourning the bad experiences that you went through, just that maybe, you know, something that happened to your life. You just mourn that you could have had better. Yeah, well, he absolutely could have had better. You know, and there's decisions made. A high cost. He paid the high cost more than anybody, but so did a lot of other people. Yeah. So, anyways, you can mourn, again, a lot of different things, but Jesus promises that if we come to him and we acknowledge that, hey, Lord, this stinks, like he could have had such a better life, and he could have had at least another 10 to 20 years of life, but he made a lot of really poor choices. And there's a cost to it, right? There's a cost to sin in the choices that we make. Another example, um, a lot of these, uh, you know, we've had a couple people in our church pass away this past week. And, um, you know, some seasons life feel kind of heavy, you know. It's like where things just aren't going well. It's a rough year. You know, sometimes you have a rough year, sometimes you have a great year. Um, And Jesus is kind of saying to, you know, again, to his disciples and to his church, he's like, hey, listen, there's going to be people around you that are having a rough year. And the idea of being a Christian and being a community set apart for God is that you acknowledge that that takes place and you love those people and give them some extra grace. And when you're that person, you don't try to say, oh, God's good, everything's good, everything's great. It's like, no, this season of life stinks, right? Somebody you care about's in pain. And to just be honest about it and to mourn it and to allow God and the people around you to actually honestly check in with you to comfort you, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, we're not going to do this rule of what the religious community is like, where you you go to the temple, you say your prayers, and you leave with no one ever knowing you, right? That is religion that isn't relationship, and Jesus is saying, the kind of church, the kind of community, the kind of people I want to have are people that are going to be authentic with one another. And develop relationships and actually be honest when something doesn't go well. And not embarrassed by it, but it's actually going to be a normal way of processing life. want to look at the story of Esther real quick. That's in Esther chapter 4, if you want to turn there. So a little background on Esther at this time. So there's this bad guy named Haman. He is basically the prime minister of Persia at the time. He's second in command only under the authority of the king. And he basically issues a decree or a law to kill every Jew and to steal all of their property. All right? He's literally the original Hitler. Okay? He lives in Persia at the time. And you can imagine if you were either Jewish or you were a friend with a Jew, you would be really disturbed by this, right? Really sad about it. That people are going to be killed or executed simply because of their ethnic background. Right. So in Esther chapter three, I want to read the this kind of start of this decree. So dispatches were sent by couriers to the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. To plunder their goods. So the month of Adar is December. Right? So he says, listen, the last month of the year, we're going to wipe out the Jews, essentially. If we can't kill them, we're going to steal all their stuff. And he gives them legal authority to do this. Well, we go to chapter 4, verse 1. Said when Mordecai, he's one of the Jewish kind of elders and leaders in the capital. He says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes He put on sackcloth and ashes on his head, right? Again, he's not afraid in their culture to express how he's actually feeling, okay? He went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly, all right? Is this guy being quiet about how he feels? No, everybody knows something's wrong with Mordecai, right? He's either a wacko or something's really wrong, one of the two, right? But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every providence to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay? So, again, in his culture, he's not to expra- afraid to express how he is feeling inside, right? So he sobs. He tears his clothes, literally. He puts on suit. And ashes all over himself, and anyone who knows Mordecai now knows there is a huge problem. They still don't know what it is, right? When Esther's <clears throat> eunuchs and female attendants came and told her that Mordecai this is her uncle, basically he's raised her. She's the queen of Persia. She was uh, she was in great distress, and sent clothes to him to put. On instead of the sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Right? When Esther summoned Hecath, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Right? So, how does Esther respond to Mordecai's grief? Yep. Which tells you what? Yeah. She's embarrassed by him. You catch it? Wernickei, stop embarrassing me. Put on these clothes. Take off the sackcloth and ashes. Stop wailing and weeping. Right? She sends him that message. Knock it off. You're embarrassing me. Skip quite a bit of the story here. We're going to jump to verse 12. They go they dialogue back and forth a few times, okay? When Esther's words are reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? Now something to know about the queen at that time, she wasn't a queen like we think of or she has a lot of power. She's really sort of his primary sexual partner essentially. I know it doesn't sound really good, but that's kind of how the culture was at the time. So she doesn't have a lot of power, just favor with the king, if that makes sense. Okay, it's not a position of power, it's a position of favorable relationship. So she's afraid to go to him. For if you remain silent, Mordecai says to her, at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther sends this reply back to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa, the capital, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, again, she can't initiate. But if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions all right so Mordecai throws his his uh, expressing his um, mourning his grief his agony his despair over what's about to happen to the the Jewish nation all right and all the people Esther tells him knock it off don't embarrass me so they have a few conversations where does Esther land She also, kind of, in a way, <coughs> excuse me, identifies with his mourning, where she stops telling him to knock it off, and realizes, oh, he's got a legitimate grief, right? And so then, to understand the culture, she is going to risk her life, going in front of the king, because anybody that approaches the king basically gets executed without invitation, unless he holds up his golden scepter, which, from scholars' standpoint, pretty extremely rare for that to happen. So, highly likely she's going to die. Thankfully he doesn't, and he raises hand when he sees her. She also says, which we skip that part, that he hasn't seen me in a month. In other words, she's saying, our relationship's not very good right now. It's not a good time to go and risk my life for the king. Right? But she does it because she identifies with the mourning of Mordecai. So I just kind of want us to think, how well do you identify with somebody when they're mourning? You know, a lot of you are, you know, you guys are young. Um, <clears throat> you may not have a lot to have mourned in your life. You may have had a lot. But there's probably a good portion of you, and it's nothing to be embarrassed about, where you've had, you know, pretty good life. You don't have a lot to mourn for, which is good. I would wish that for everybody. But do you identify with others who do mourn? If somebody else is going through something really hard, can you identify, can you sympathize with them? Can you check in with them? Can you for a moment try to put yourself in their shoes a little bit where you listen to where they're really coming from? Can you be part of the solution to help comfort others when somebody's going through something? You know a couple little tricks that I've learned. You know, is I've, um, I don't have a good relationship with my dad. I, I quite frankly never have, which is kind of another thing you, you sort of mourn. It's like you don't even know what you're supposed to feel because typically, you know, like if I lost my mom, I've had a great relationship with her. I would I don't want to think about that. I would be very upset. You know, uh, but with my dad, it's almost like I don't know how to feel. So it's almost like I'm mourning that I don't know how to feel. You know, it's like I know I should really. Grieve, but I'm more upset over the loss and his mistakes than I am that he's passing away, which is weird. It, so it's kind of disturbing me. Um, but I was thinking through, you know, what helps people when they're in mourning? And to me, at least the thing that's helped the most is worship. You know, literally choosing to worship God even in the midst of something going really poorly. I remember doing that a lot, especially when my parents were going through a divorce as well, like just Pouring out my heart to the Lord, you know, and allowing Him in worship and just trusting Him, God, that you got you have a good future ahead, even if this is a mess right now. And I'm going to trust You for that. It's spiritual warfare to enter into worship, and God can use a lot of healing and a lot of comfort in that. I think you also just by reading the Bible, praying, and getting counsel from other people, you can certainly um, receive a lot of comfort through your morning. But really, I, the primary thing, at least in my own life, that I've experienced is worship. If you will worship and things are not going well, God will come meet you right where you are every time. So we're going to break up into small groups and do a little discussion. Let me pray for us, and then I'll send us into our groups. So, Lord, I thank you for this day. God, thank you for this night and your word, Lord. Um, Morning is kind of a heavy topic, um, but it's real. People are going through it all the time. They're losing loved ones. Lord, families might be falling apart. There might be a lot of conflict, uh, a lot of loss. Lord, there might be a lot of choices, poor choices made either by ourselves or or to us from other people or around us with those we care. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to appropriately grieve and to look to you for solutions and for answers and to hope for a better day in the future, Lord. Help us be poor in spirit as well where we recognize we are um, part of a broken world, Lord, and true healing and touches from heaven come from you. We love you. Thank you for this night and a chance to be together. We praise in Jesus' name.